All right, so go ahead and open in your Bibles. If you have them, I invite you to open them to Luke, not 1 Kings. We're going to go to Luke this week, chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're taking a one-week break from 1 Kings. And then we're going to hit it next week, the building of the temple. And then we're going to take a nine-week break again from it. where the, uh, We're going to go through the book of Titus. Um, and that's going to begin our elder summer preaching series. And so we're going to have nine weeks in the book of Titus. And uh, we're going to have four or five uh, different elders uh, preaching that. Or four, I guess five. There's six of us. So five elders preaching that. And then I'll take the other weeks and walking through the book of Titus. And so I'm always excited about that uh, in the summer. Uh, one, uh, it, it's, it's good to have other people write and preach sermons. Um, uh, one, it gets me a little bit of a break. But also, it's good for all of us to hear from different people. And uh, so we have our elders who are in place for a purpose. And they can teach just as much as I can. And so I always enjoy getting to hear them and have them. And if you notice, when they preach, I'm here. I don't skip that week. Uh, because I like listening to them and I like being here with you. And so, uh, but we're going to begin that in a couple weeks. But I needed, just, just being honest, I needed another week to prepare the sermon on the building of the temple. Um, I was doing a couple other things this week and I just didn't have the time to devote that was necessary for that particular text, for those two chapters. And uh, so we're giving us another week to prepare that. And in the meantime... I thought it would be good to go back and just preach a passage uh, from a gospel because you know, that's what I've been doing devotionally, reading through the gospel of Luke, uh, because I've been Darren and I have really gotten into the show called The Chosen. And uh, I think it's a great show. If you're if you if you haven't seen it, it's really, really well done. Uh, it's about the life of Jesus. And uh, but it's it, that has caused me to want to go back and reread just the gospels and kind of visualize things. That's been really, really good for me personally. And so I've been reading through Luke and I came to this text. And I was like, okay, well, I want to do a te- text in the gospel in a gospel. So I, I was like, okay, well, I'll do that passage. And then I went back and I actually found a sermon that was written by my father, my dad, uh, Phil Miller, and he preached it in 2008. Uh, and, and so I have taken his sermon and I have revised it for us this morning. And so a lot of this was written by him and it's really, really good. Uh, and so, and so we're going to be in Luke chapter seven, starting in verse 36, verse 36. Actually go back to 31. We'll read that because we'll hit that a little bit later in the sermon. To what then should I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a lament and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine and you say he has a demon. But the son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. 
and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. And she wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. Then the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You've judged correctly, he told them. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, and that's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. To those who were at the table with him began to say, uh, or those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so let's pray as we open up God's word. So Father, come before you. And we thank you for your word. Here presented in Luke. And so we pray that you would Open our hearts and minds to hear what you want to say to us this morning. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when my dad was writing the sermon, he was thinking about this text, about this, this woman. And um, just for context, when it says she's a sinner, what that very likely means is she was a prostitute. And, um, and so my dad was, he went with my mom to the mall, Ridgemar Mall, back when the Ridgemar Mall was a thing. And um, he was hanging out at the Ridgemar Mall, and she was going to go to Dillard's or something. And he was like, I'm just going to chill here. And he sat down on a bench by, that, uh, by the fountain there that had the, the, the turtles that would spit the water into the fountain. And um, he was hanging out at the fountain, and he said he was watching people come up and just like throw coins in to do the make-a-wish, throw it in the fountain thing. And he said he watched a six-year-old girl uh, and her dad come up, or some girl around six probably. Uh, throw, throw a coin in. And her dad said, did you make a wish? And she said, yeah. He's like, okay, no, come on, let's go. And he was thinking about people throwing coins into the, the fountains and, and, and making wishes. And, and he's like, okay, well, what would she wish for? What kind of thing would people wish for? And then he was thinking about this text, and he started thinking, what would a prostitute wish for? Now, you've got to imagine, like for, for, for many of us, we would think, Probably one of, the, one of the first thoughts would be to just have a different job, have the ability to be able to do something different and to be able to provide in a different manner than the way that she is. Why? Because in their context and in ours, but even more so in theirs, because it was a highly religious culture to where Judaism was a part of your national identity. So like it was expected that you were a God follower. And so in that culture, people who did these roles or that job were really not held in a high esteem. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Not held in a high esteem, especially religiously. And so religious leaders, pastors of their time, 
really viewed these people with contempt and avoided them at all costs. Just like, don't even go, I'm going to walk around them to not come in any kind of a contact. But, but for this woman, you've got to imagine, there was really no way out. There's, it's kind of a cycle. Because the reason you would get into a role like this was either you were coerced, you were coerced into it, or you, you got into it by necessity. And back then, the reason it was a necessity is because you did not have a man to provide for you. That was, that was the, the general, that was how culture worked back then, is you needed a man to provide for you. Uh, but if you didn't have that, you had to go with what a trade was. And, uh, and so for, for many women, this was the manner that they went. Um, and, so, and so life apart from this job meant for her a life of poverty, a life of starvation. Um, and so it was no doubt a, a never-ending cycle of perform for food, perform for food. And you can imagine in a highly religious culture, you hate yourself all the time because of it. And so, and so for this woman... She's just repeating this process every day trying to survive. But imagine that, okay, in their religious culture, it's not just your physical life that you have to worry about, but also think about your spiritual life. Because if the pastors, if the pastors of their day viewed her as unredeemable, then what would God think of her? If the people who represented God viewed her as so repulsive, and it's unredeemable, then what would God think of her? And so enter this story. Now, verse 36, there was a Pharisee who invited Jesus to come eat with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And so Jesus is probably teaching at the synagogue, local synagogue. And at the synagogue, you have a Jewish leader would come up to Jesus and say, okay, come over to my house. We'll have dinner and kind of continuing the teaching time. And now this wouldn't have been a closed off group or a closed off thing. Like people, other people from the town could come in and eat dinner or kind of listen in on their conversation in their home. And, uh, and so, uh, so he entered the house and was eating at this guy's table, this Pharisee's table. And all of a sudden, this woman shows up. This woman from the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's home. And so they're in there eating dinner. She shows up. And now notice, we don't actually have the full story here. We don't know exactly what was going on. So what's going on between her and Jesus? Why would she choose to show up to Jesus at this time? Because she shows up to hear Jesus, but she's brought some stuff with her. What she brought with her? A big jar of perfume. She's, she's, she's come to stand at Jesus' feet. She's weeping. She begins to wash his feet with her tears. She wipes his feet with her hair. She starts kissing his feet and anoints them with perfume. He's like, she doesn't know. Like, I mean, we don't know exactly what's going on here. Why, why did this take place or what's happening here? So did she have a friend who uh, had an experience with Jesus? Uh, where, he, where her friend was healed, or her friend was shown compassion, or was she shown compassion by Jesus? Or did she just hear about Jesus and think, okay, well, I guess maybe if he's shown compassion to other people, then maybe, maybe he'll have compassion towards me? We don't really know. We don't know why she showed up, but something has happened in her life that has led her to believe that she could approach Jesus. 
Something has happened in her life that has led her to believe that she could come to Jesus and honor him and he wouldn't treat her with disdain. And so by faith, she came to Jesus and she honored him in the most humbling and sacrificial way. She started to take the job of a servant. So she went to him and started cleaning his feet. Now, many of us in this room, there are some of us in this room who just don't do feet. Like you don't, like if you're like your spouse or someone's like, hey, would you rub my feet? You're like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, do you think feet are, feet are gross, feet are stinky, shoes are stinky, but even more so back then, because showers were not as common, you walked everywhere you went, you wore sandals often, roads were dirt, like feet were pretty, pretty gross often, so when you went to someone's house, there was usually a bowl of water where you could wash your feet off before you went to lay at the table. Uh, but tables, they didn't have chairs, you kind of laid them, it was awkward, you laid on your arm and ate, but anyway, so, uh, but feet were kind of gross, but this woman comes in. And she, she comes specifically for Jesus, and she begins to honor him by cleaning his feet. But she doesn't just do it by finding a pail of water and bringing a wash rag. What she does is she goes to him, and she starts wiping, using her tears as the water. And she uses her hair as the rag, and she cleans off his feet, cleans the dust off his feet, cleans the smell off his feet, and then she takes this bottle of perfume that was probably worth a year's wage. I don't know how she had it. Maybe it was a gift. Maybe it was inheritance that she's just had for a long time. We don't know. But she's taking this bottle of perfume. She breaks it and then pours it out on Jesus' feet to anoint them. This is a pretty sacrificial moment for her. So the question is, is what would cause this woman this, to do this kind of action? What would cause her to do this? But now remember, there's, a, there's another dude here. So I want you to move on. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this moment, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet would know who and what kind of woman this was. He would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. She is a sinner. So he's saying that to himself. He's saying that. And so what he's saying is, is if Jesus knew what I knew, or if Jesus could see this situation rightly like I can, that he would see this woman as she really was, which is a sinner, as, as unredeemable trash. He would see that if he could see this situation like me. And he wouldn't let her near him. Now he's making a couple of assumptions here. One, he said if he were a prophet, he would know this. He's making an assumption that one, he knows what a prophet would do. And two, he's making the assumption that Jesus is oblivious to what's happening in this situation. And so what we see here, that we're beginning to like, see from Luke is unpacking this for us a little bit. We're beginning to see that we have two people here who need a savior. We see a sinful woman who has found a Messiah. But then we see a self-righteous man who is still in need of one. Now, for you and me, often when we read the Gospels... 
we really see the Pharisees as a pretty cartoonish villain. Um, we see like, like they're the ones who are pretty easy to hate. They're the ones who are always antagonistic towards Jesus or towards his people. And it's like, well, the Pharisee is the bad guy. Like Pharisee didn't equal bad guy back then. Pharisees were actually really, really respected. Now, for us, they're an easy straw man because we view them as the people who think that hating people and being mean to people is the way to love God. And, and so like, that's just kind of our view of these guys. But really, we should be a little bit kinder towards them uh, with, and, and a little bit more humble with our respect towards or with our view towards them. So here's the background on the Pharisees. They lived their lives in complete devotion to the law of God. They lived their lives with complete devotion because their nation's history, the history of their people, taught them that anyone who disobeyed God's law brought God's judgment upon their people. And so they wanted to uphold the law in the highest sense because disobeying God meant you were bringing God's judgment. You were bringing God's condemnation on your nation. And so therefore, if you disobey God, i.e. disobey his law, then you are setting yourself up as the enemy of God. And they really did not want to be that. They wanted to protect obedience in order to not become that. And so following the law, obedience to the letter of the law became the marker for them of those who love God and those who are loved by God. Obedience to the law for them meant you were proving your love for God and that meant you were one who was loved by God because you were not under his judgment. You were following his law. And so that was deeply important to these guys. The problem though as many of us know, is that when you get passionate about a specific thing, it can lead you to gain blind spots. And so what for these guys, the problem is that in pursuing strict obedience to the law of God, they developed a neglect for the heart of God behind it. They, ne- they developed a neglect for the heart of God behind it. And so we read that in verses 31 to 35. Jesus said this, what should I compare these people, this this generation, these religious generation, these religious leaders, what are they like? They're like kids who are hanging out at the marketplace. Parents are shopping, kids are hanging out, and they're they're saying, hey, listen, we're going to play a game. Why don't you come play with, play with us? And he's saying, and you're not coming to play. We sang a dance, and are we sang that we're playing the flute, and you're not dancing. We sang a lament, and you're not playing along. You're not weeping with us. He's like, you're being like belligerent children who are refusing to come and respond in the right way. He's like, that's what you're doing. So, for example, we have the spectrum presented here. John the Baptist came, and he, he did not drink alcohol. He did not, he didn't come, he just, he didn't come eating bread. And you said, your response to him was, he has a demon. He's not from God. But then you have the other end of the spectrum, and you've got Jesus who came. And, you, and he's drinking wine, and he's coming and eating, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard. He's not from God. You've got both ends, and you're responding to both of them horribly. 
You're not responding to God in the way that is right and the way that is good. You're seeing his people and you're, 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 you're turning away from it. That's what he's saying here. And then all of a sudden he gives this, he's, he's teaching about that. And then the next passage is, and here is one such Pharisee who is seeing God's action and seeing God's people. And he is refusing to respond in the way that God tells him is this is how you should respond. And so he sees this woman coming to Jesus and honoring him. And for him, her act is repulsive. He's not seeing things rightly. Now, this is just like us, right? When you get passionate about something, about passionate about following the law, then or passionate about a, a for, for this guy, passionate about following the law led him to think those who are not following the law are outsiders. They can't be part of God's people. Well, for that's many of us in every one of our hobbies. When you get passionate about something, that leads you to become kind of prideful about it and to assume that anyone who's not up to your level in the hobby is, uh, is not as good. And so, for example, cycling. I, I, I talk about cycling often here. Uh, you know that I like riding bikes. And uh, so if you go run like a 5K or a half marathon or something at a race, those events are insanely positive. Um, the, everyone is just super supportive, super encouraging. It's a really fun environment to be in. Cycling is not that way. Cycling, cycling is really elitist. And uh, I've learned that getting into, the, getting into the sport. Like it is super elitist, super filled with arrogance or disdain towards other people. And there's terms for, for different people you see cycling towards you. Like, oh, that's a, that's a, I forgot. Someone said something the other day. I was riding. They're like, oh, that's a something. I can't remember what he said. Um, but like there's terms for different people where you characterize people in terms of their skill level and their equipment level. Um, and so if you don't match up to a specific thing, if you don't match up to a specific level of equipment or skill or average speed or distance, then you are immediately uh, uh, kind of cast out. And so one example is uh, uh, shaving your legs. There's an unwritten rule among cyclists that if you are a real cyclist, you shave your legs. I'm dead serious about that. Um, now, mine are not shaved, because I'm not a sheep. But, um, but there's an unwritten rule that if you're a real cyclist, you'll shave your legs. And so if you're cycling, and you roll up on a group of cyclists, and your legs are not shaved, immediately, regardless of what you're riding, or how fast you're riding, or your distance, or anything else, immediately you're written off. Because you're not part of the group. Because you don't fit the mold. And, 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 and it's not limited. Like, it's not limited to this. But like that, the idea is like, you have to prove you're worthy to be part of the group. But it's not limited to cyclists and Pharisees. Like, we do this in all of our things. Like, like if you're really into woodworking, you're really into baseball, you're really into contouring your makeup. I don't know. Uh, like, like you, uh, you, you've got these roles or these things where, like, if you can't match my level, then you're not as good as me. And, and so you kind of cast it out. And, like, the Pharisees fall into that to where their passion for following the law led them to neglect God's heart. And so that's where this guy's at. That's where this guy is at. And so Jesus, verse 40, enter Jesus into the story here. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. 
And he said, say it, teacher, because this is continuing the teaching time from the synagogue. Teacher, I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to hear from you. Say it, teacher. And Jesus said this. A creditor had two people who owed him money. One owed him 500 denarii, which is over a year and a half's worth of uh, um, salary. So say the average teacher makes $50,000. This guy, uh, he owed $75,000 here. One owed $75,000, and the other owed 50 denarii, which is about three months, so say $12,500. Both of them are a lot of money. But since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave both of their debts. So which of these two would love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. And Jesus answered, you have judged correctly. You have judged correctly. Now, here is his lesson. Here's his point. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil. And that didn't mean like he took like the whole great value thing and like dumped it. Like it just, it's like a little bit. Like you just, you know, you're not just like needing a towel later. I've always wondered about that. Um, You didn't anoint my, my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore... I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. And so here's his lesson regarding this woman who came in, who needed Jesus. This woman has found, this is what he says, this woman has found the Messiah. And in me, she has found great forgiveness for her many sins. And what you're seeing here is the right and comparable response. She loves me greatly because I have forgiven her greatly. She loves me greatly because I have forgiven her greatly. It's a response of gratitude towards Christ. But then look what he says at the end of this, at the end of verse 47. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And for Simon, here's what Jesus says, it's but with you. You haven't honored me. You haven't anointed me. You haven't provided water even for me to wash my feet. You have loved little. So what does that say about how much you've been forgiven? And then he turned to her, verse 48. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And so one thing that Simon said in verse 39, back in verse 39, is, is right. He said, this woman is a sinner. Yes, that's totally true. The problem for Simon is that he didn't view that as a category he was also in. He said, there's something that's associated with her, but not me. She needs, she's a sinner. She's the one who's out and an outcast, not me. I don't need that. 
because I'm not a sinner. I follow the law. He refused to view himself in the same boat. But this woman knew this about herself, and that allowed her to humble herself and seek forgiveness from Jesus. And guess what? She found it. She found it because she admitted she needed it. And look what he says in verse 50. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so for Luke, here is his point. Here is his point. Jesus is a friend to sinners. Jesus is a friend to sinners. He came to give forgiveness to those who admit they need it. He came to offer forgiveness to those who admit they need it. So earlier we asked the question, what would God think of her? Well, here in this text, she met him. And what he told her is, I forgive you. Your faith has saved you. And now go in peace. And that is the God that you and I serve. That's the God that is here offering forgiveness to every one of us. Jesus didn't come for her only, but for all of us. Jesus is a friend of sinners and everyone who comes to him by faith and admitting their sinfulness and in choosing to repent or turn from our sins and seeking his forgiveness that he bought through his death on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead will find it. That is the message of Luke here. Jesus is waiting with compassion for all of us who are sinners if we just admit we need him. That is his point. And so here is the question for all of us here. Is what is preventing you from turning to him? And so the bank comes up. If you are listening and you have never done that, you've never turned to Jesus, here's how you do it. You do the exact same thing that we see from this woman in this passage. Where you humbly acknowledge your guilt before him. That you are a sinner in need of saving. And you come to him. And you say, Jesus, you offer forgiveness and I want to receive that. And then you follow him with your life and honor him. That's the process of becoming a Christian. That's what it looks like. Receiving his forgiveness. Following him by faith. And so if you have questions about that, come find me. I'll be sitting in the front over here. I would love to talk with you about Jesus. For the rest of us here, there are many of us who have at one point asked for forgiveness and said, okay, I believe in Jesus. I want him to come into my heart. I need forgiveness for my sins. But since that day, you have never turned to him and asked for his forgiveness for your sins that you've done since then. And that does not mean that it's a continual process of needing to be resaved. Because once you ask for forgiveness from Jesus and ask him to be saved, then that happens one time. But there's a continual process of repentance and sanctification where you admit your sin to him daily and say, Jesus, 
I am still a sinner in need of your great grace, so forgive me. And for some of us, we need, just need to do that and admit that we are still sinners and we are still in need of his forgiveness. And when we do that and we turn to him, what he does is he is quick to listen and to say, I forgive you. And so I'm going to pray. And then the band is going to play uh, just for about 30 seconds or a minute uh, to give you time to turn to Christ. And so, Father, I come before you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for this, this text in which we see this beautiful picture of Jesus and that he is a friend to people like us, a friend to sinners. And so if we admit we need him, then he is there waiting with compassion to offer forgiveness to us. So help us to rest in that. And help us to make use of that, to turn to him and admit our need. And to find hope and life and peace in him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.